Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you're transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust that you're using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in the life of a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. I'm grateful to be here this morning, church. I'm confused, though, because Pastor Will told me he hit a winning streak and he was going to stay a few more days in Vegas. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I do pray that uh, Pastor Will and the entire family recovers quickly from COVID. This morning, we're going to look at another man's sermon. And no, I haven't gone on Sermon Central and appropriated another man's sermon. We're going to look at another man's sermon. More specifically, we'll view the sermon and situation around which an audience reacts to the preached word. The preacher is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ our sovereign savior. Jesus will return home and preach a sermon in his hometown synagogue. We'll observe that he reads the word, exposits the word, and applies the word. He's the ultimate preacher. He need not take a preaching class. At the onset of our Lord's sermon, the crowd marvels at his words. However, by the close of his sermon, murder is on their minds. What kind of sermon is this? We have one main objective this morning. That is to discover what caused the original audience to turn from adulation to anger and how this same sermon still causes modern-day listeners like you and I to move from marveling at Christ's words to being filled with murderous thoughts because of them. And how might our murderous hearts be moved to live in constant marvel of Christ? By God's grace, I'm your messenger this morning. And I do pray that the Lord would soften our hearts so that rather than being angry at Christ and his word, that we might find ourselves welcoming the Lord's words and experiencing his power with grateful hearts. Let's read our text and then we'll commit our time to the Lord. We'll be in Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled and your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, 
Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can gather this morning because of Jesus, the living word. There is no other reason by which we ought to be here this morning than to hear the word of our living God. And your word tells us that it's powerful, that it cuts between bone and flesh, and it pierces the heart. Break our hearts for your word this morning. We are a people in need of salvation and sanctification. May your word work deep into our hearts this morning so that we might not reject your word. And if our hearts are at this very moment hardened, that you would soften them, that we might receive the word of Christ. I'm your servant. We are your servants this morning. We need your help. We ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might work in us, that your will and your way would be done in us this morning. We commit now both text and time to you. It is in the name of Jesus we ask and pray these things. With the people of God saying, amen. Now in verses five through 13 of Luke chapter four, Luke has just shared with his readers how Jesus was anointed at his baptism and being full of the Holy Spirit, hear those words, full of the Holy Spirit, he went into the wilderness where he defeated Satan's temptation. Verse 13, after defeating Satan, Luke tells us that the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. I think we'll see that time in the verses ahead. Our high priest defeated Satan's temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now it seems, in verse 14, that Luke would have us think that Jesus came from the wilderness and went right into the region of Galilee. In fact, if one only read the Gospel of Luke, one might think that our Lord walked out of the wilderness and through the front door of the synagogue. In reality, an entire year has passed since Jesus was baptized and his messianic ministry was inaugurated. A year. Roughly a year has passed since Jesus was anointed at the Jordan. 
In fact, his earthly ministry had begun there in Judea in the southern region, not in the north. All except for a brief, brief trip back home for a wedding. We've all had to do that probably. The wedding in Cana, Jesus had spent the entire first year of his ministry in the southern region of Judea, preaching the word of God and displaying the sovereign works of God. So what is going on here? It was Luke in chapter one of his own gospel who says he took up the task to write an orderly account. This is what he tells his friend Theophilus. Skipping a year doesn't seem very orderly. Indeed, it was. It is. Luke is purposeful in here in detailing Christ's sermon in Nazareth as the focus of the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. Why has Luke chosen to focus on theology rather than chronology? I believe it's because Luke wants to show us something, to give us a preview of Christ's entire earthly ministry. In a glimpse, in this sermon, Luke will show us both the gospel and our ghastly hearts. So let's look at this preacher's sermon. We see that Jesus reads the word, exposits the word, and applies the word. Jesus reads the word, verses 16 to 20a. Jesus is back in his hometown. Luke tells us where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. I love this. Here's our Lord returning home. Jesus has been gone for some time since the inauguration of his ministry at the Jordan River in Judea. And now, after preaching all over the region of Galilee, in which there were over 200 synagogues, one might think Jesus might skip church when he went back home. But no, Luke tells us it was his custom to go to the synagogue, meaning this is what he did every week. This flies in the face of those who would speak disparagingly against the body of Christ, saying things such as, I don't believe in the corporate church. The institutional church is screwed up. Trust me, friends, the synagogue in Christ's day was probably more messed up than even this church. And this is a good church. Well, the church is a people, not a steeple. Yes, yes. Yes, and the people are called by God's word not to neglect regularly meeting together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. So here is our Lord and Savior, the head of the church himself, as was his custom to gather with God's people weekly, even when he returned home. He's in his hometown. He goes to the synagogue, likely the synagogue he grew up attending, Luke verse 14, make sure to tell us, key phrase here, that it was in the power of the Spirit by which Jesus returned to Galilee. This phrase establishes continuity. Jesus went into the wilderness under the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came out of the wilderness victoriously, say it with me, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke is trying to tie some shoelaces together here. He wants to let us know that at no point is Jesus without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. This is important. It's a very important detail because Christ's power will be questioned by his listeners. Jesus, a guest preacher, is no doubt given the opportunity to stand in the pulpit. He's at the synagogue. 
The word is spread all about him throughout the surrounding countryside, Luke reveals in verse 16. He stands up. This was the custom. Stood up to read the word. In fact, there was an order of service, just like your bulletin has an order of service here for us. The service in the synagogue began with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and so on. It was followed by two prayers. Scripture was read, beginning from the Torah. That's Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then a section of the prophets was read. This is where Christ steps in. Instruction was followed. We would call that exposition. And then the service was closed with a benediction. So Jesus stands. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. He unrolls the scroll. And he reads what we know to be Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. A passage that promises the coming of God's salvation. Verse 18 Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Savior, the Messiah, the one who brings the salvation of God. And Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To preach the good news, to proclaim the good news. Isaiah says the Messiah is anointed to do one thing primarily, to preach. Three times in our text, Jesus says to proclaim. That means to preach, to proclaim, to proclaim. Preach good news to the poor. Preach liberty, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to preach the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has been anointed to preach the good news. And while his listeners may have heard that he had been baptized, they certainly didn't have the perspective that we have. We know that Jesus was anointed at his baptism, not just for prophetic ministry, but as the promised Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here, Jesus is claiming to be directed by God to preach and minister good news. He is both an anointed son and a prophet who has come to reveal God's will and fulfill God's promises. The goal of Christ's anointing was to preach grace, to preach the good news. And while not grasping the significance of Christ's atoning work, or anointing at his baptism, those in the synagogue certainly knew that Jesus was claiming a degree of authority and power. If not yet, they will when he exposits the word. For now they knew exactly what Isaiah was prophesying. Or did they? They knew to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor was a hat tip, if you will, to the year of Jubilee a time which came every 50 years in which the play clock was reset. Land was returned, debts were forgiven, slaves were freed, a time of rest and restoration. Now we've got to pause here for a brief moment. We must acknowledge that the Lord's use of Isaiah's prophecy has provoked widespread differences in opinion as to how to interpret what Jesus means here. Indeed, who Jesus even is. Is Jesus speaking about political liberation for the oppressed? Addressing class struggle, referring to socioeconomics? Or is he speaking about the spiritual liberation and the deliverance from bondage of sin? Here's where we have to start. Jesus, the text primarily hears about Jesus, not ultimately about us. Jesus is saying that the prophecy of Isaiah is about him. 
his life and ministry. Jesus is the Messiah, the prophet, who brings the announcement of Jubilee. He sets captives free. He holds the power over life and death. He brings liberty, rest, and restoration. Now looking at how Luke uses the word poor in chapter one, as well as throughout his gospel, in addition to looking at all of Isaiah chapter 61, especially verses two, four, seven, and eight, it's clear that both Isaiah and Luke were referring to the Messiah's salvific work in delivering humanity from the bondage of sin. The Messiah will deliver us from spiritual brokenness, spiritual poverty, spiritual imprisonment, spiritual blindness, spiritual oppression due to sin. And this good news of deliverance is to go to the poor, the imprisoned, and the oppressed, all who have need. And we all have need. As someone once said, the gospel has feet. The good news sets people free in whatever social or political circumstance they may reside. Are you glad that the gospel doesn't, isn't dependent upon you being rich or poor or white or black? The gospel is for sinners and we are sinners in need of God's grace. The good news sets people free. So here Jesus has read the text. He's faithful to the text. He exposits the text in verses 20 and 21. Listen how he exposits the text. After reading scripture, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sat down. This was the practice. He's not being disrespectful. One would unpack the scriptures as they sat. Verse 20b, and the eyes of all, not some, but all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Picture that. Not a single person checking their Facebook out. And here in verse 21, here it is. A one-sentence sermon. Some of you are like, man, I wish that dude would have done that. A one-sentence sermon. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. That's the sermon. Today, it's done. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. The divine prophet who brings good news of God's kingdom and salvation has just done it. Today, not tomorrow, not next week, not a year from now, not 400 more years from now. Today, it's done. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. God's kingdom has come right in front of their eyes. The good news of freedom has come to the spiritually poor. Like the physically poor who are ever aware of their need, does this crowd In our text, or moreover, are we humble enough to recognize our spiritual brokenness? We are spiritually destitute. We are in need of a Savior, a righteous Savior, to deliver us from our sin, the very sin which tragically separates us from a holy and righteous God. I love Luke's emphasis all throughout the gospel, and even particularly here about the blind and the poor and the oppressed. These are people, worldly speaking, who are ever aware of their need. I need money. I need food. I need help. I can't see. The one, the picture here is one of desperation, one of being aware of your need. Like blind Bartimaeus, whom Jesus gives physical sight, do we trust and believe in the Son of God? Are we brokenhearted? Are we aware of our great need? Jesus has read the text. He exposited the text. It's fulfilled. 
Now, before he applies the text to his original audience, and we see how they respond, let's gauge the audience real quick. Verse 22a, first part of it. And all, not some, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Okay, things are going well. Preacher's doing well. This is the part of the sermon where the preacher's in the home stretch. God's people seem to be responding well. No one is getting up and walking out because they're late for lunch. He hasn't gone over 30 minutes here. He's doing good. Seems to be positive in the dialogue. The audience is upbeat. They marvel, Luke says, at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Speaking of this being a positive or a high moment in the synagogue or in during this sermon, makes me think of the teeter-totter. You know what I'm talking about? Seesaw, teeter-totter. It's a piece of equipment found on, a, found on children's playgrounds. The teeter-totter was the place on the playground where all of the short, stocky kids really shined. <laughs> Man, we couldn't dunk a ball on the court and make it past the third rung on the monkey bars, but we could sit. We'd sit on that board while lighter classmates were left helplessly dangling in the heavens until recess was over. Nobody knows the origins of the teeter-totter or the seesaw, but we first read about it in a book with a very long French title written by an English priest who was trying to help Englishmen learn how to speak French. Uh, we first hear of the word teeter-totter seesaw in the year 1530. I've always been fascinated by teeter-totters, or more specifically, the fulcrum point. The fulcrum point the fulcrum point is the point which a lever turns or something that plays a central role in something or the center of a situation or activity. The fulcrum point is that thing in the middle of the teeter-totter by which each side of the board is balanced. Well, our text, moreover, Christ's sermon has a fulcrum point. More accurately, it has two fulcrum points. There's a fulcrum point in mood and there's a theological fulcrum point. We're witnessing the fulcrum point in mood. The high end of the teeter-totter, verse 22a, all, not some, but all, marvel at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. I love that, by the way, how Luke says that. He doesn't say they were pleased with what he said. He doesn't say they marveled, um, uh, they were happy with what he said. They marveled at the words coming out of his mouth. It's a picture of bated breath, eyes open. Mouths wide open, a picture of anticipation. But were the ears of their hearts open? Sadly, they were not. The low end of the teeter-totter, verse 28 and 29, were going down. When they heard these things, all, not some, but all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What a strong word. He didn't say hate. He didn't say anger. Wrath, the same kind of wrath that Romans talks about. They were filled with wrath, and they rose up. They took their wrath into action. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could kill him, push him off that cliff. This sounds very reminiscent of the mob who came beholding torch and weapon to arrest our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Where's the fulcrum point from adulation to anger? Where do we see the point in mood shift? The answer is in the back half of verse 22. Seconds after marveling at the words that were coming from Christ's mouth, what kind of words? Gracious words. They ask a question. Is this Joseph's son? That is the fulcrum point in mood. This is no gracious question in response to gracious words. This question is rooted in doubt and reveals a deep hatred of heart. This is not a question of curiosity. Hey, is that Joe's boy? The question is one that reveals not only doubt in who Jesus is, but doubt in the power that he possesses to transform, transform lives and usher in freedom, hope, deliverance. Certainly the year of the Lord's favor had the crowd thinking of deliverance from Rome. But what power does this guest preacher have to defeat the Caesars and restore our land and wealth? They want the power, you see, but not the kingdom that produces the power. We can see their doubt in Christ's power in how Jesus responds to them. Jesus has read the word, he's exposited the word, and now he applies the word. Verses 23 to 27, he applies the word. Jesus responds with two parables, and he issues a serious, a stern warning. And in these parables and this warning, you see his sovereign power. Verse 23, first proverb, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. Show us, prove it. It's never a lack of evidence that causes one not to believe, but an unwillingness to hear the word of God and receive it. Miracles as powerful a testimony as they are never convince one who does not want to come to God and heed his word. This issue is not one of sight, but of sound. They refuse to hear and believe. They do not hear and believe because their hearts are hardened. Luke 16, 31. Jesus knew that he would encounter hardened hearts. He says to another group, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that's all of the Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Second proverb, verse 24. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This proverb reveals that Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament and its history. Jesus knows how God's messengers were rejected. Jesus would experience this rejection all throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus was not surprised by this doubt and disbelief. The apostle John reveals in John chapter two, verses 24 and 25, that another group of hard-hearted people confronted Jesus. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knows the condition of our hearts. Saints, What's interesting in our passage, or moreover in Christ's sermon, is that when Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, he leaves out a portion of the prophecy. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Here's what Jesus left out. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has sent me to bind up or heal the brokenhearted. Jesus knows that the hearts of those in the synagogue would be hardened and that they would be looking for him to perform miracles of healing, and he did not want to gratify them. Charles Spurgeon references Christ's lack of including this part of Isaiah's prophecy, the binding up of brokenhearted. The brokenhearted. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Possibly he gave them nothing about the healing that day because he knew that they were not brokenhearted. He who reads men's hearts knew that they were captive to unbelief, blinded by prejudice and fettered by sin. And therefore he said, he hath sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, but the tenderest part of the gospel being inapplicable to their case. He would not mention it in their hearing at that time. He would not cast it like a pearl before swine, but reserved it until they should lament their sin and adopt another mood. This, it strikes me, is the reason why the passage is not mentioned in the original gospel of Luke. And if so, the omission is most instructive. Take heed, Spurgeon says, lest you also should miss the sweetest word of the gospel through being in an unfit state to receive it. After citing two Proverbs, Jesus continues his sermon application with a stern warning. Verses 25 to 27 Jesus recalls the history of Israel during the period of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Say it 10 times, Elijah and Elisha. During this time, the nation, and during this time in the nation's life, they, their rejection of God and his word was at an all-time high. Idolatry and un, unfaithfulness to God were running rampant. During the days of Elijah, verse 25, there were many widow, widows in Israel so the need for deliverance was great. The heavens were shut up for three and a half years and there was a great famine over the entire land. The people were desperate. But because of their rejection of God and his word, God sovereignly sent his word by way of his prophet Elijah to none of them. Instead, God's word went to a Gentile land, the land of Sidon to a widow named Zarephath. The word went to one poor of heart. During the time of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of them experienced release. None of them were cleansed because they had rejected God's word. Instead, God sent his word and, he, and the healing it brings to a Gentile, an Assyrian named Naaman. Friends, the price of rejecting God's word, the price of rejecting God's message is severe. The mercy of God may move on to those who are poor in spirit. Christ need not prove himself to those in a synagogue. Just as in the day of Elijah and Elisha, the sovereign Lord chooses the brokenhearted whom he will bind up. At this warning, rather than heeding the words of Christ, the hearts of those in a synagogue were hardened and hatred towards them. The word of God will do one of two things. It'll either soften your heart or harden your heart. It's not neutral. It does something to the heart. 
They'd gone from marveling at Christ's words to putting those murderous thoughts, the murderous thoughts of their hearts into action. Verses 28b and 29, again, all, not some, but all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up to drove him, and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. One can only wonder if this is the opportune time that Satan had been waiting for when he left Christ in the wilderness. How is it that those who spoke so well of Christ and who marveled at his gracious words could turn to murder? How is it that the crowd could turn from adulation to anger? The answer is found in a theological fulcrum point. Something happened between Christ reading the scripture and Christ expositing the scripture. What was the theological tipping point? Verse 21, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, let me fill you in on something. The whole world rests upon this fulcrum point. Jesus is the Messiah who heals the blind, sets the captives free. Jesus liberates us by his blood, delivering us from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. Jesus sets us free. In Christ alone are we forgiven and freed from slavery. We are made by his grace slaves to Christ. Jesus is the plan of God who has come to fulfill the promises of God, and it is by his gracious word that he sets sinners free. Are you poor of heart? Receive him and be set free and rejoice in the deliverance brought about by the fulfillment of God's word. We have a deliverer. Family of God, rejoice in the deliverance that Jesus has given you. Rejoice. Thank him for saving you and setting you free. Jesus has provided for us. He has given us freedom and deliverance. We're going to take communion at the close of the service. What a wonderful opportunity in accordance with 1 Corinthians 11 to check your heart. Perhaps there's unrepentant sin in your heart. And because of it, you've pushed Jesus to the edge of your heart. Repent of that sin and by the power of the Holy Spirit, turn to Christ. And friends, maybe it's been your custom to visit a church now and then. Maybe it's your custom to visit this church every Sunday, but your heart is truly murderous towards Christ. Romans 3 reveals that all, not some, but all, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ I plead with you, heed the word of Christ in repentance. Perhaps the most heartbreaking portion of our text this morning is verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Heed the word of Christ, lest he go away. And you miss the freedom, the joy, the hope, the deliverance that Jesus alone provides. Receive the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word that works in us. It is by your sovereign word that you call sinners to yourself. Jesus, we fully acknowledge that, that all too often we are accustomed to coming to church every Sunday, but in many ways in our lives, we push you, push you to the edge of town. We push you to the edge of the way in which we live. We push you out of the center of our hearts. 
rather than our affections being guided by you and directed by the Holy Spirit, we allow worldly and earthly things to shape what we do and even to begin to shape who we think we are. Oh Lord, let us heed your word. We thank you that you've saved us. We thank you that you continue to work in your people through your word. Work it deep in our hearts, we pray. Lord, for any man, woman, or child here who has a hardened heart, it is not by their works, but by your grace that they can receive the freedom, the deliverance, the jubilee that Jesus provides. Would you call these sinners to yourself by the power of your word and by the blood of your cross? We pray and ask these things in Christ's name with God's people saying, amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more information about joining us for a worship service or taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.